Please take your Bibles out and turn with me once again to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We've been in this chapter for quite some time now. It's a long chapter and there's a lot in it. So we're uh, picking up with verse 39 this morning and I'll be reading verse 39 through 46. Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 39. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Father, teach us this morning, we ask. Do it, Father, by the power of the indwelling Spirit, and for the sake of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, we are this morning on holy ground, so to speak. As we continue to work our way through this gospel, Jesus has come to the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke simply says that we are on the Mount of Olives. The other gospels tell us that it's not only on the Mount of Olives, but it is, in fact, in the Garden. The other Gospels give us details that Luke does not give us because Luke compacts the narrative and focuses us in on specific things. And at the same time, Luke tells us some things that the other Gospel writers do not mention. Luke alone, for instance, tells us of the angel sent from God to strengthen Jesus there in the garden and in this way wants us to focus on that titanic struggle that is going on in the heart of the Savior. The other Gospels tell us that as Jesus and the disciples got to the garden, that eight of the disciples stayed out at the entrance and sort of served as sentries to protect Jesus and his inner circle. And that his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, went in further along with him. And then he drew away a bit further from those three. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus prayed three times and interacted with his disciples On each of those occasions, Luke focuses in on some specific things, again, compacting the narrative so that we'll learn the lessons that Luke has for us to learn. When you come to the different gospel accounts of what's happening here in the garden, it's actually a good example of how the gospels function. It wouldn't make much sense, would it, for 
all four gospel writers to write exactly the same thing. Each author is taking the same events from a different perspective and writing with a different purpose, wanting to point out different things so that we will learn different things from each of the Gospels. Now, I need to say one other thing about this passage. It's also very clear that Luke, and you see this because Luke begins the passage by Jesus exhorting his disciples to do what? To stay awake and pray. And he ends the passage having noted that the disciples had not stayed awake and prayed. It ends with another exhortation to do that, however. And immediately after exhorting them to stay awake and pray, Luke depicts Jesus doing what? Staying awake and praying. So it's clear that one of the things that Luke wants us to get out of this passage is a very important principle for the Christian life, to always stay awake and pray. Be alert and always in contact with your heavenly Father. Now in so doing, he shows us an example of the Lord Jesus Christ doing exactly that. It's important for us to remember that In the 19th century, it was popular, especially amongst liberal theologians, to summarize the gospel as be like Jesus or do what Jesus does. And while we certainly want to be like our Savior, that's not the gospel. If that was the gospel, we are in big trouble because we can't be like the Savior. Bible-believing evangelical preachers have for hundreds of years been responding to that particular presentation of the gospel. Be like Jesus, do what Jesus does, with a response that that is, in fact, not the gospel, and if that is the gospel, then we're doomed. If salvation is a matter of being like Jesus, then... We don't do what Jesus did, which we don't. And the conclusion is pretty clear. I've noticed, though, that in the last 10 years or so, in, in the midst of that helpful corrective against a gospel, which is no gospel at all, many have decided that there is no example to be drawn from what Jesus does. And that's, that's going to the other extreme. No, we are called to be like our Lord. We are called to imitate him. Well, we come to this passage. And the key is this. We are to imitate Christ, but we are also to recognize that Jesus is never just a mere example. Jesus is God in the flesh who gave himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for the salvation of his people. The gospel is not do this and Jesus will save you. The gospel is Jesus has done this to save you. Jesus has borne in his own body on the tree the weight and punishment of your sin. You could not have borne that. 
You could not have done that. It was done for you. The gospel is not you do. The gospel is Jesus did. At the same time, we in the Christian life are called to do things. And one of the most important things we're called to do is to pray. Jesus has already taught his disciples how to pray. He did that verbally. When you pray, pray like this, he said. Then he gave them an example, a model prayer we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. But he also gives them an example. And we are to learn, as the disciples were to do, by example. We are to follow that example. We're to be encouraged by that example. But Jesus was not merely an example to follow. He is a savior who has by his blood taken our punishment upon himself, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So bear that in mind as we read this passage. The passage is about Jesus and what he did, which we cannot do. But it also has for us that exhortation, pray and watch. Jesus has left the upper room in Jerusalem and walked with his disciples about 15 minutes from that room to the Mount of Olives. He had been doing, we are told in the Gospels, he had been doing this each night during the week. You can imagine Jerusalem, remember, is packed. This is Passover week. There are no accommodations to be had for lodging within the city. He and his disciples have been staying out on the Mount of Olives. The language is used that they had been lodging on the Mount of Olives. This is why we're told here it was his custom, verse 39. Now, whether that meant they were sleeping under the stars on a hillside and that was their lodging, or whether there was a place with a little bit more comfort, I don't know, but that's what we're to understand. It was Jesus' custom, and therefore the custom of the disciples who were with him, to lodge there on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus knows that he is about to be betrayed. We've already seen that in the passages we've seen in weeks past. He's already told his disciples that he's going to be betrayed. He knows where he's going to be betrayed, and he knows that his betrayer is going to be Judas. His betrayer knows that the custom of Jesus is to go to the Mount of Olives. Judas knows that because Judas has been there with him night after night after night. So they go to the garden and Jesus engages in a great contest, a contest of heart. 
which he plays out in prayer with his heavenly father. Luke tells us some rather striking things. For one thing, Luke tells us that Jesus knelt and prayed, verse 41. Now that doesn't surprise us. Christians have been kneeling in prayer for 2,000 years now. But that was not the common posture of prayer for Jews. The common posture of prayer for Jewish people in Jesus' day was to stand with your eyes lifted up to heaven and your hands open to the skies. Have you ever wondered why preachers stand up and do that sometimes? A lot of preachers will do that during the benediction. May God's face shine upon you. Grace of God be with you. Well, it's just a common posture of prayer. You can find Moses doing it. You can find the prophets doing it. In fact, there are some parts of the world today in which that is still the common posture of prayer. But Jesus does something different. Jesus kneels and begins to pray. When Jesus, when when Luke rather, tells you that Jesus is kneeling in prayer, he's telling you something unusual. This is an unusually strenuous prayer that Jesus is undertaking. And I want us to see several things from this passage today because it's a passage that reminds us how utterly dependent we are on Jesus and what he has done for us. But I want to begin with an exhortation that he himself gives twice in this passage and many other times to his disciples. And you see that in verse 41. At the end of verse 40 and in verse 41, he exhorts his disciples to pray that they may not enter into temptation. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray. Disciples, pray, and pray for a purpose. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then Jesus goes off on his own and he prays. And we see from this that Jesus is showing us here what we are to do in times of trouble and testing. And the disciples are a part of this prayer effort, at least they're supposed to be, and they already understand what's about to happen. Jesus, remember, has filled them in on the events that are yet to unfold. He's told them, guys, I'm going to be betrayed. And the betrayer is one of you. So as they come into the garden, the disciples have that on their minds. Jesus is telling them, 
This is a crucial moment. And temptation is knocking on your door. So what do you do? How do you respond? You pray. And Jesus prays. This is what we do in times of trouble and testing. Now, let me say why I say that it's so very clear that Luke wants us to get this. Jesus, first of all, in verse 40, tells the disciples that he wants them to pray that they may not enter into temptation. And he means by that, especially the testing that they are about to endure, which Jesus knows about. They don't really understand it. It's interesting that Jesus himself carries upon his shoulders the cares of the world and he's still thinking about the well-being of the disciples. Jesus is about to take upon himself the sin of the world and yet still in the forefront of his mind is the fact that the disciples are going to themselves face temptation. And he counsels them. Pray. If you're going to deal with the temptation that is coming, you need to pray. This is how you will endure. He knows that in the testing and the trouble and the trial that he is about to undertake, they too are going to face testing and trial. And he knows that when the Sanhedrin's main opponent is out of the way, when they've dealt with Jesus, then they're going to come after Jesus' disciples. And he wants them to be prepared for the tests, the trouble, the trial that they are going to go through. And so he exhorts them to pray. Brothers and sisters, What has changed? What has changed? Jesus is not here. And so what does the world do? They come after his people. This is what is set out for us so clearly in the book of Revelation. The dragon, the serpent, Satan, He comes to the woman who is about to give birth and he wants to devour the child. But the child is caught up to heaven. So what does the dragon do? Scripture says that the dragon goes after the child's brethren. You see this in Revelation chapter 12. The woman, speaking in general of Israel, was going to give birth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So you know who that is. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness 
where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Last verse of that chapter. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Satan would have liked nothing better than to stop the incarnation, stop the crucifixion, stop the resurrection, as Satan understood the resurrection connected to the crucifixion. But he couldn't. Couldn't. So, what's next? Us. Satan and the world coming after the rest of her children. Those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And Jesus then comes to his disciples and says, Listen, temptation's coming. Trial is coming. Testing is coming. You'd better pray. Because the way to endure testing and temptation and trial is to pray. And then he gives them an example of it. That as Jesus faces his great test, he prays. And then when they fail to do it, he exhorts them again at the very end of the passage. It's clear that one thing that Luke wants us to get out of this whole scene is how we believers are to respond in times of trouble. Now, of course, there's nothing new about this. There's nothing original about this. One of the things that I mentioned at the retreat when I was opening the word there to those men, was that I had nothing new and novel for them. I've just got what the church has been understanding and learning for 2,000 years. As I was opening up a passage of Paul's epistle to the Philippians. It's nothing new. It's nothing necessarily all that Exciting. We're not making new discoveries here. Christians pray. Is that a new idea? No. But that's what Jesus calls upon his disciples to do. The same thing the people of God have been doing since the very beginning. Pray. Trouble comes, pray. Temptation comes, pray. Both the Old and New, Old Testament and New, there is a regular pattern of believers going to the Lord in prayer in times of trouble. And when they neglect to do so, there are consequences. When they neglect to pray. We're seeing this in, in our study of Joshua, aren't we? When Joshua decides, I'll take care of it. I'll make the decisions. I'll make the plans. I'll be the one who strategizes. Things don't go well 
When Joshua and the people of Israel pray, the Lord directs them. And the Lord fights for them. And the Lord gives them victory. In Psalm 50, verse 15, the Lord tells us, Call upon me in time of trouble, and I will deliver you. Isaiah 48, 13, I am oppressed, O Lord, undertake for me. Do you pray that? Because you can, you know. You can just lift those words right out of the Bible and make them your own. Lord, I am oppressed. Undertake for me. James 5.13, James says, Is any of you afflicted? Let him pray. In times of trouble, pray. And yet so often when we are in deep trouble, there are things that prevent us from going to God in prayer. Now, one of the few urgings that you should never ever resist in life is the urge to pray. It's what the Spirit does within his, his people. There are lots of urges that ought to be resisted. Prayer is not one of them. You can be sure that when you're prompted to pray, it is either of the Holy Spirit's doing that you have been prompted to pray, or that it is just something welling up within you because you know you ought to pray in response to what the situation in your life is. Because you know the word. The urge to prayer isn't always supernatural. It just comes out of our understanding of what a Christian is. I'm a child of God. The scripture tells me when there's trouble, I ought to pray. In fact, the scripture tells me when there's not trouble, I ought to pray. Scripture tells me I ought to pray all the time. But boy, when I'm in trouble, that's when I really need it. That's when I know, Lord, listen to me. Listen to me. I am oppressed. Undertake for me. When you are discouraged from praying, by arguments in your head and your heart as to why there are more effective things you could be doing, you can also assume that that discouragement comes from the evil one who does not want you to pray when you're in trouble. What did we just come out of? What did we just see in the previous passage? Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you, plural, you disciples, like wheat. What would Satan love more than to keep God's people from prayer? He knows that's where our power lies. Here Jesus is saying to his disciples, in the face of your testing, in the face of the trial to come, in the face of your trouble, in the face of temptation, pray, that's how you are to meet it. And so we learn from this passage that in times of trouble, the Lord would have us pray. 
and he gives us his own example. He shows us how to pray, what to pray in times of trouble in this passage. Look again with me to verse 42. Notice that Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now I want to pause right there and say that Jesus had been appointed before the foundation of the world to drink this cup. He knew that He knew what the Father's will was for him, and yet he prays to the Father, if it is possible, remove this cup from me. And I want you to understand, there is no hopeless petition that you cannot bring to your heavenly Father. If God will hear that petition from his Son... There is no petition, however hopeless you may think it is, that you cannot bring to your father. Now, your father may not grant your petition, but he will take your prayer and he will use it in the accomplishment of his purposes, which as his people is what we ought to desire. But look at the next part of the prayer. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Every prayer that the believer offers in time of trouble or any other time is to be in the spirit of the desire that God's will would be done, not mine. Jesus has modeled for us how to pray. Of course, he taught the disciples this months and months before when they said, Lord, we are just so struck by the way that you pray. You talk to God like you know him. Your prayers are filled with scripture. Tell us how to pray. Teach us. And Jesus said, you'll remember as part of that prayer, he said, pray Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's part of the model prayer. And here, Jesus practices what he preached. And he teaches us that we are to always pray, your will be done. Now, there are those who will tell you, That when you are in situations of trouble, when there is someone who is sick, when there is someone who is dying, when you find yourself in a very difficult situation, there are those who will tell you, don't pray, your will be done. Don't pray that way because that's your escape hatch. And if you pray that, it means you don't have enough faith. You should just tell God exactly what you want and leave him no other options. We're not going to pray any of this your will be done stuff. Some will tell you that. In fact, I've heard some actually speak in terms of commanding God to do what you want him to do. The presumption of those who teach such things is just off the charts. 
Obviously, there are a multitude of errors in this kind of teaching. Let me just mention a couple. First, no creature commands the creator to do anything. Second, and flowing from the first, how does any creature, fallen and finite, get to a place at which he believes he knows better than the omniscient God who has promised to work all things together for good? How do you get that in your mind? Brothers and sisters, I do not want to command God. I do not want to, quote, leave him no loopholes as if that were possible. I know who I am. And I know how little I know. And I know how much wickedness taints that which I do know. That being the case, I do want his will because I know that his will is always good. Imagine the level of pride and hubris necessary to tell God, I know better. Because that's exactly what these people are saying. Finally, when your understanding of doctrine or practice is such that you end up saying, Jesus did it wrong, you might want to give it another thought. Jesus did it wrong. Jesus prayed, not my will but yours be done. But we shouldn't pray like that, these people say. So Jesus got it wrong. I don't think so. I will always pray your will be done. Because that's how my Savior prayed. And that's how my Savior teaches me to pray. It is never inappropriate for a believer to pray your will be done. That's what Jesus taught and that's what Jesus did. The key to understanding this whole passage is what's going on in the garden. It's Jesus' struggle to yield a willing sacrifice to God. He was called to do God's will and the very thought of what it was going to cost him filled him with agony. But he wanted his sacrifice to be willing. And so the very crux of this passage is that prayer. Your will be done. Now there are those in the world who think that believers are simpletons who never ever struggle with doubt. Because when trouble comes, we pray and we look to God for help and they think that we really don't know anything about doubt. The reality is believers know struggles with doubt so deep and dark that unbelievers can't even comprehend it. But we also know peace and assurance that is more complex and more certain than any unbeliever could possibly grasp. And it has to do precisely with this petition that Jesus is lifting up. Thy will be done. I don't understand what you're doing, Lord. I don't understand why I'm going through this. But your will be done. We may doubt along the way. 
We may struggle along the way, but if our end point is your will be done, that's all that matters. If we get there, then we have arrived at where we need to be. But then if you look especially at verses 42 and 44, we come to really the crux of the whole passage. Jesus is praying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And then look down to verse 44. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And Jesus is taking us here into the sanctuary of his own agony. By the way, this is the only place in the New Testament where we find spoken the agony of Jesus. This is it. He takes us into that agony. He shows us what causes that agony. And it is not merely the excruciating physical suffering that he is going to face the next day. How do we know that? We know that because of the language that he uses. He says, Father, take this cup from me. Now the idea of a cup is clearly associated with its repeated use in the Old Testament. Let me just give you a few examples. Psalm 11, verse 6, the psalmist speaks of the fire and the sulfur and the scorching wind that is poured out of the cup of God's judgment. Ezekiel 23, Ezekiel tells us of the horror and the desolation that is stored up in the cup of God's judgment. Isaiah 51.17, Isaiah speaks of the cup of God's wrath, his judgment, which he will pour out to the dregs. And Jesus here speaks of the cup against that backdrop of Old Testament understanding. As he prays, It is not the physical suffering which is his primary concern. It is the cup of God's judgment and wrath being poured out upon him because he is taking the sin of the world upon his shoulders. He understands what that cup contains. And he understands that he is about to drink it. And it leads him, Luke tells us, to agony. An agony that we cannot possibly understand. Some of you have found yourselves in situations in which you are full of agony. You know what that word means. And I don't in any way want to minimize that. But the fact remains that on that night 2,000 years ago in the garden, Jesus experienced an agony that none of us can ever understand. And he is alone in a way that none of us can begin to understand. Even his inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, who have been taken in to stay with him, to pray with him, 
They're asleep. And while they are sleeping, he is experiencing this excruciating agony of soul as he contemplates bearing the wrath and judgment of God and drinking the cup of God's wrath to the dregs. Every drop. So don't ever think your Savior does not understand your agony, your loneliness. It's actually the other way around. He understands your agony fully, but you can never understand his. And this is one reason why Luke is showing us what happened there in the garden. You see Jesus in the midst of a great struggle. There is a sacrifice that must be made, and it's a sacrifice which is his and his alone to make. It is the sacrifice of atonement, but that sacrifice must be a willing sacrifice. You look look back at the various pagan religions down through history, and many of them included this idea of human sacrifice. Here is one of the crucial differences. Pagan human sacrifice was never willing There was always an unwilling victim. But this sacrifice must be a willing sacrifice. And the Savior is fighting in his heart not only to say, Father, I do what you have sent me to do, but Father, I yield my will to your will so that what I do, I do because I want to do your will. And is that not the great battle that we all face? It's our battle with sin. In sin, we are tempted to think that the thing that will give us satisfaction is precisely the thing God told us not to do. And Satan tells us the only way to obtain satisfaction is to do your will, not God's. And the great battle of sin is to realize that what Satan is telling you is a lie. The truth is that satisfaction will only be obtained as we do what God has commanded, even though it may seem like the hardest thing anyone has ever done. Even though it seems like something we are unable to do. Lord, I know you want me to forgive, but I just cannot forgive her. Lord, I know that you want me to love him, but I just can't love him. Lord, I know that you want me to persevere through this circumstance, but I just cannot go on. And the great battle that we face is what? Is to say, Lord, it's your will, and so I want it to be my will too. Lord, I know it's your will, and because it's your will, I want to desire that which you desire. And this is the battle that Jesus is facing in the garden, to give himself willingly into the Lord's hands, even though he knows it means that he will be crushed, as the Lord said through Isaiah. He knows it, and he knows it better than any of us in this room will ever know it. 
even after a billion years in glory, we still won't know it. He knows what this will cost him, and he will do it willingly because his will is to do his Father's will. And he will do it willingly because his will is to offer himself for you. And while he's doing it, there is no one, not a single solitary soul in the world praying with him. That is what it means to be alone. And Jesus knows what it is to be alone. You know, there's a passage at the end of 2 Timothy in chapter 4 where Paul mentions that when he finally gets to Rome and finally appears before the, 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 the Roman proconsul to be judged, that no one stood with him. And that's got to be one of the saddest passages in Scripture. Paul should not have been alone in that moment. But in that moment, he was just like his Savior. And when you find yourself in agony, and you know what the Lord's will is for you, in the midst of that agony, and yet, you persevere and you endure and you do what you know the Lord's will is for you, then you are being like your Savior. And isn't that the goal? That the disciple be like the master? This is what our Savior did for us. He was fighting this battle of heart to offer a willing sacrifice and he did so utterly alone. There's one last thing that I want you to note, and you see it in verses 45 and 46. When Jesus gets up from his great battle, and the battle is won, he walks back out to his disciples, and he finds them sleeping. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow, and said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, as we read that, Luke is being very kind in his portrayal of the disciples. I wonder if you've ever noticed this before. Luke tells us they were sleeping from sorrow. Sleeping from sorrow. I understand that. Do you? Right? Have you ever been so tired, so, so burdened that the only escape you have from that weariness of soul is found in sleep? That's where the disciples were. And the Lord Jesus does not come with some roaring rebuke. He says, brothers, get up, wake up, rise, pray. Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He's saying this for the second time. You're about to face temptation. I'm concerned about you. And I know that the way you're going to get through that temptation is to pray. So wake up and pray for your own sake. And Luke is so intent on showing us this. 
He's intent on showing us both the weakness of the disciples and our own weakness. And while he does that, he's also showing us the tenderness of the Savior. If you're one who has trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are one who rests on him alone for your salvation as he is offered in the gospel, understand this. Even when you fail to heed the Lord's exhortation to stay awake and pray, he does not fail you. He stays awake and prays when you do not. And that makes for you an eternal difference. The Lord is doing that even now, you know. He has ascended to the Father. He has sat down at the right hand of the Father. And what's he doing there? He is interceding for us. He is praying for us. When you sleep, he's praying. When you're going through agony, he's praying. Because he loves you. And he wants the best for you. And he knows that God's will is what is best. He who watches over Israel does not slumber, nor does he sleep. Your Savior ever watches over you. And that is why nothing can pluck you from his hand. Nothing. That's why the gospel is not about your doing. It's about what Jesus has done. And it's about what Jesus continues to do. Praise God. Father, thank you. Father, thank you for the encouragement that we find even in Jesus' own agony. That Jesus cares about us even in his agony. And that even now, Father, when we are so faithless, when we are so prayerless, Jesus is always faithful. And Jesus is always praying for us. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.